Well, we're embarking on a new series this morning, and it's a a series that we're going to be in for five weeks. We're going to look at five different psalms over the five weeks in January. We're going to start today with Psalm 1, but we're not going to follow in order. There are a couple others in Psalm 27 and 31 and so on, so we're going to kind of jump around in the book, Uh, but we're going to be looking at five different psalms over the five Sundays of January. What makes this so special is that we are actually doing this in conjunction with six or eight other churches in Spokane. So this happened a couple of months ago. Um, We were sitting around a table with some other local pastors in the area, and uh, we began to talk about this idea of actually doing and preaching a series together. And so we're preaching this here. Um, Russ and I, and I think Rob will speak at one point over the, the course of the five Sundays, and then in those other churches, the pastors there are speaking, but we all prepared these messages together which is really cool. We've been meeting over the past couple of weeks and, um, and studying together and, and coming together as a group of five or six, eight, ten guys and sitting in a room and saying, hey, what does Psalm 1 say? How do we get into this? And, and challenging one another in that and studying one another, all in the hopes, <clears throat> excuse me, all in the hopes uh, that we continue to say it's not just about new community. It's not just about vintage. It's not just about Kaleo community and Otis Orchards. It's about the church. It's about Spokane. And so we're going to continue to try to make some strides to do stuff like this, to do stuff in conjunction, to actually work alongside and with other churches trying to reach the city of Spokane. So that's what makes this Psalm series really special is over, you know, in six or eight other churches around Spokane, they're talking about the same stuff. They're talking about Psalm 1, and, uh, and that's really cool. So it's not just us hearing this message this morning, but it's a, it's a bigger group in Spokane hearing this message, which is pretty awesome. So um, let me give you just a quick intro into the book of Psalms. If you haven't spent much time there, if you haven't studied all that much, the book of Psalms is really a book of songs, and that's what it means. Psalms means songs. In the Hebrew, it actually kind of means praises is what they would say. But you know, if you've read many of them, that not all of them are praise-type psalms. They're psalms of lament, psalms of deep sorrow, psalms of joy, psalms of wisdom, psalms of thanksgiving. There's celebratory psalms, historical psalms, prophetic psalms. There's royal psalms. So there's this great, great litany of different types of psalms that are written, written by different authors. And really, if, if we're to read them, it's more like reading poetry than it is anything else. It's really a book of beautiful beautiful poetry. It's poetry in the fact that it's personal. It's like poetry in the fact that it's emotional and raw. It comes out of personal experience and feeling. And so that's how we have to read them. That's how we have to study them. Just like you wouldn't read a chemistry textbook in the same way you would read a fiction novel. You put on two different types of glasses when you read those things. We need to do that when we read the Psalms. We can't read these as we would the Gospels. We can't read these as we would some of Paul's letters. We read these differently. We read them as poetry. So I'm going to invite you to put on those glasses for the month of January. I'm going to invite you to make this more of maybe a right brain exercise, the more creative side of your brain versus the left brain analytical side that we come and and we know and understand that we're actually going to be studying a book of poetry. So with that said... Let me pray, and then we'll turn to Psalm 1, and we'll jump in. Pray with me. Lord, we're thankful that your scripture contains beautiful poetry. We pray that you would help us to understand, that you would uh, send your spirit to guide us through this, not just this morning, but for the next five weeks. 
Open our hearts and our minds to see you anew in the Psalms. Lord, may this be an, an exercise of great encouragement, an exercise that pushes and challenges us. So speak to us through this, Lord. We're thankful that we can gather, that we can worship. We're thankful that you've called us to this place. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me uh, begin by reading Psalm 1, and I'm going to read it out of the NIV this morning. This is what it says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the first thing we notice as we read Psalm 1 is this really lays the foundation for the entire book of Psalms, for the entire Psalter, all 149 Psalms that follow Psalm 1 can kind of rest on this foundation. The fact that there are two paths. And so this psalm contrasts those two paths. It's the way of the blessed or the righteous and then the way of the wicked. And this theme continues to emerge throughout psalms, throughout Proverbs, throughout a lot of the wisdom literature in the scripture. It's saying that there are only two options. There's only two paths. It's pretty black and white. There's not a ton of gray in the scripture. Now, I would be the first to admit, I love gray area. That's where I feel most comfortable. I love mystery. I love questions far more than I like answers. I love when I can look at somebody and say, well, it could be this, but it could also kind of be this. I find comfort in that. I like that. But the scripture here is pretty clear. It's pretty cut and dry. There are two options. There's either the path of of the righteous, the path of the blessed, or There's the path of the wicked. Jesus even kind of talks about this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus, again, implies that there are really only two options. There are two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The wide gate that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to life. He doesn't then throw in after that and say, well, and there's a middle gate too that leads to just a kind of comfortable life, one that doesn't rock the boat all that much. That's not in this scripture. He says there's two options. There's the wide gate that leads to destruction and there's the narrow gate that leads to life. So both Jesus and Psalm 1 paint this picture of life as a journey, life as a path, life as a way. We talk a lot about that from up here, that life really is a journey. There's a lot of twists and turns. It feels like kind of an epic story in all of our lives. But the reality is is there's really only two paths for our lives to journey on. Either we're on the path 
of the wicked or on the path of the righteous and blessed way. Jesus teaches it a little bit like this. He says, you're either with me or you're not. Those are the two options. So that's kind of a big picture look at Psalm 1. But let's look in a little bit deeper because the scripture gives us an indication of what does the wise man do? What are some of the distinctives that he does in order to keep himself from the path of the wicked? The first thing is I'll throw out three things that the wise man does not do. It says this in verse 1, He does not walk and step with the wicked. He does not stand in the way that the sinners take, nor does he sit in the company of the mockers. What's beautiful about this is it shows this idea of a progression, a slow progression. Walking, standing, and then sitting. You see, I don't think that path to destruction, I don't think people wake up and just say, well, I'm going to begin on my path to destruction now. People don't aspire and just wake up one morning and say, yep, that's, I'm now taking this path. It is a slow progression. I experienced that. I lived kind of one of those after-school, special high school lives where my slow progression led me to to some pretty incredible destructive habits. I didn't just wake up and say, well, okay, now is when I'm going to begin to rebel. But it happened as I slowly began to pull away from my family. I slowly began to pull away from the church that I was involved in. I started hanging out with the wrong crowd went to my first party, but didn't want to do anything, just wanted to go and, and check it out and didn't want to drink and so on and so forth. And six months later, a year later, I find myself in a place where my mom and dad had to take me to the detox center to say, hey, this could be your life. This is the path that you're on now. It was a slow progression. That's what the scripture is talking about. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you have friends that have experienced that where you just kind of begin to tell, well, they're just, they're just drifting farther away. Something's wrong. Some of the things they say, some of the things they've been doing, it's, it's just like this slow, evolved process. That's what the scripture is talking about. There's three actions in there, three verbs, walking with. And that's how it begins, just that simple walking with. It's, it's just association, it's proximity. It's that initial step where you kind of begin to walk along the path of the wicked. You're not fully bought in, but it's, it's, again, it's that first step. Then it says standing, standing in the way that the sinners take. And standing is this idea of agreeance or support. We even say the term, hey, I'm standing with you in this. That's a term that we commonly throw out to show our support of somebody. Going through a hard time, we say, I'm standing with you in this. And it shows this idea of I support you. I'm in agreeance with you. We begin to notice that with each of these progressions, walking with, standing, and sitting, there's this level of comfort that's being established. And then it says, you sit in the company of the mockers. It's the actually becoming one of them. You are now sitting in their presence. You're now taking on their identity. And it's that slow progression that starts with just a first step. And the big idea in this scripture is this. Stay away from sin. Stay away from it. There's an urban legend that uh, was encouraging to me when I was in college. When I was 19, 20 years old, I was in several different kind of accountability groups throughout my my college history. And 
Um, if, if you're a guy, you know what I'm talking about, but when you're in an accountability group as a 19-year-old um, with just vast amounts of maturity and so forth, <laughs> oftentimes kind of the, the ground level, what we talked about most was this idea of purity, the idea of lust. And so we would always check in, I mean, weekly with this group of guys that I would meet of, hey, how are you guys doing? What's going on? How's your purity? People, you know, guys were dating um, ladies and, you know, how's, how's stuff going or, you know, is pornography an issue, so on and so forth. And so we'd kind of get into all these issues of, of purity and lust. And there was this urban legend that went around. We were all involved in Young Life at this point, And there was um, a story of this guy who was a Young Life um, area director on staff, essentially doing full-time ministry for Young Life. And he, several years earlier, had kind of brought to the attention of his accountability group, who was not us, but um, these older gentlemen, that he was kind of struggling with internet pornography. And it was a seed that was planted years and years previous to that. And it was beginning to kind of rear its ugly head in his life. And he had a family, and, and he's in vocational ministry. And so guys would come around and, and pray for him. And, um, and, and they didn't really see much victory in this. So after weeks go by, months go by, and he continues to come back each week and say, it's not getting any better. I, I'm continuing to struggle with this. I'm continuing to find myself going to websites that I shouldn't be going to. And the story goes that one morning, kind of early, one of the guys in that accountability group came and came to the house, knocked on the door, and gave, you know, embraced him, gave him a hug, and said, hey, where is your computer? And so he went in, into the office, and that friend pulled the, unplugged the computer from the wall, took it out in the street, and cracked, just threw it down in the middle of the street. Now, again, I don't know if that's a true story, but what I think it paints is this idea of get away from sin. Do whatever you have to to stay off the path of the wicked. Take your computer out and throw it on the ground if that's what it takes. Yeah, you'll be out some money. Yes, you'll lose some of your documents and, and, that, and that stuff. But those are temporal things. Those are meaningless things compared to being on the path of the righteous. So that story brought us encouragement that you've got to do whatever it takes. We need to be a people that reviles at evil and wickedness. A people that we don't even go near it, that we don't associate with it, that we flee, we run, we turn around from sin. That's what this scripture is talking about. Saying the wise man doesn't even get near it. Psalm 1 speaks also to what the wise man does. And it says that he does two things. In verse 2 it says, The wise man delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on the law day and night. This idea of delighting in the law, for the Jewish people, they would have understood that the law in the Old Testament was the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as they called it. And it was the foundation for their entire understanding of their world. It was the lens through which they saw everything. It defined them as a culture. It defined them as a people. And the scripture says they delighted in those things. They delighted in the definition of them being a restored and chosen people. They thought on and dwelled in the truth that the law is central and that God's voice of direction was for them. And so that's what they delighted in. Now when we hear this, I think we immediately go to how much time do I spend studying the Bible? My delight equals how much time I spend in quiet, how much memory verses I have nailed down, how many new Christian books I'm reading right now. 
Do I feel guilty if I don't take a quiet time? That might be a good barometer if I'm delighting in the law. But I don't think the scripture is so much about that. I think the scripture might be better if we ask it this way. Do we delight in Jesus? Do we actually love Jesus? Are we in love with him? Do we find joy in living out the greatest commandment of loving others and loving God with all that we have? Are we impassioned by the movement of the kingdom of God? That might be a good question or a good series of questions to ask ourselves. How are we delighting in the law? Because if we don't, if we if we don't delight in Jesus, if we're not in love with Jesus, what are we doing? And what path are we on? The second thing that the scripture says the wise man does is he meditates. And in this scripture, in this, in this passage, it kind of means this idea of muttering or the chewing on of something. It's the idea of what is rattling around in your head all day long. I like to say, where are you camping out right now? The wise man mutters truth. See, meditating is less about how many hours we spend in quiet and with incense burning, and it's more about what is rattling around. What do we mutter to ourselves? What's the script that we're saying over and over? We think about muttering oftentimes negatively. We've all been in the room where somebody walks in and you, kind of that undercurrent of voices begins to go, whoa, that, that guy's here? Wow. I didn't think he would ever come to this. Have you heard about so-and-so? It's really surprising that they're, that they're joining us. It often happens in churches. Somebody new walks in and you kind of think to yourself, or you lean over and say to somebody, well, finally they're here, they need to be here. <laughs> but what if muttering was more about this idea of what do we say to ourselves? How are we speaking to ourselves? What's the script that we say about ourselves? You see, we all have that script. We're all muttering something about ourselves and about others all day long. And maybe yours looks something like this. I'm just not good enough. I don't measure up to them. I'm unlovable. There's no value in me. Maybe you're on the other extreme and you say, I'm incredibly valuable. I'm probably the most valuable person in this room. I'm too good for everyone else. I'm untouchable. You see, we all have a certain script that we begin to replay day in and day out. The way we view ourselves is biased at best, but it's sinful more often than not. That lens that we have. I heard it said as we were preparing for this, another gentleman that was there as we were studying Psalm 1 said this. It's probably more important that we speak to ourselves than listen to ourselves. I think there's some really valuable truth in that statement. I mean, think about the beauty of aligning our script, the things that we mutter to ourselves over the course of the day with the truth of Scripture. What if we aligned our script, the things that we mutter about ourselves with how God mutters about us. 
What if we muttered a whole different script? One of truth, one of joy, one of the gospel. That's what the wise man does. The scripture then says that the wise man that does this, that delights, that meditates, that mutters, is like a tree planted by streams of water. The imagery of a tree is used throughout New Testament or throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for, for wisdom. And here's the biblical promise in this psalm. Those who find joy in the gospel life, those who mutter things of Christ, will be, will be rooted firmly near the source of life. Interesting parallels if you look at John 4 as Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. And he says this, Those who drink of the water that I give will never thirst again, and it will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. The promise is that those who delight, those who meditate, will be like trees near living water, and Jesus says, I am that living water. I am that water, and you will never thirst again. Verse 3 says, Those trees yield its fruit in season. Their leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. You see, when we're planted close to Jesus, when we're near streams of living water, fruit becomes evident in our lives. And fruit is the mark of spiritual formation. It's the mark of maturity, both fruit individually and then fruit in the world around us. That's the real mark of spiritual maturity. That's the mark of growth. That's the mark of transformation. And the scripture says, whatever, he do, whatever we do will prosper. Other translations uses the word succeeds. Now the scripture assumes in this place that our definition of success is in line with God's definition of success. And I don't think that that's often the case. We view success as a great car, as paying down our mortgage, as getting a promotion, getting your quarterly bonuses, great health, all of those things, we tend to say, well, that's what a successful person looks like. But biblical success is being close to God. It's transformation, spiritual transformation. It's maturity. It's joy it's peace, it's patience, goodness, self-control, having right perspective. The scripture says that is how we will prosper. Those things will be evident in our lives. The psalm concludes this way in verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The language of wicked and destruction is sometimes kind of hard to deal with. It's hard to wrestle in. My bias tends to be towards an all-loving God, an all-gracious God, and he still is. We can find truth and hope in that. But what I learn from reading a verse like that that talks about the wicked leading to destruction, God watching over the righteous, is that this is incredibly serious for God. The path that we're on matters. We can trust in the fact that he is faithful and that he will watch over the path of the righteous. 
we can find hope in that. You see, God wants all of us. He wants both the righteous and the wicked. That's why he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for all humanity. But he also wants all of us individually. He wants everything we have. In James, we talked about the idea of a double-minded man. See, there's no room for a divided spirit in this. Again, it's one of those black and white things, that there is two paths. You can't be kind of on one path, but kind of on the other path as well. God wants all of us, everything that we have. There's no room for that divided spirit. God wants us to seek righteousness, to turn from wickedness and evil, and in so doing, to delight in him, to meditate on his glorious truth. We're actually going to just take 35, 40 seconds right now. We're going to put a prayer up here on the screen, and that will just be up. We're going to take a moment of just quietness, a moment to think about this idea of two paths, to ask your question, what path am I on? What path am I beginning down right now? Do I truly love Jesus? This prayer is from the Book of Common Prayer, and we'll pray it together when I bring us back. But take a moment here, and just kind of in reflection, think about some of those questions this morning. And then we'll, I'll gather us back. God wants us to seek righteousness, to turn from wickedness and evil, and in so doing to delight in him and meditate on his glorious truth. This is the foundation of the Psalms. This is what we'll be talking about over the course of the next couple of weeks. Let's stand and let's pray this prayer together. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with thy most gracious favor, and further us with thy continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in thee, we may glorify thy holy name, and finally, by thy mercy, obtaining everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go 